Welcome into this week's edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast alongside Sun Devil Source publisher Chris Cartman. I'm your host, Kerry Crowley. Chris, Arizona State falls 37-32 at the hands of the Washington State Cougars. Mike Leach defeats Todd Graham and what has kind of developed into an interesting rivalry between the two coaches. Of course, during the week, the acquisition or the accusations of the sign stealing and their post-game comments received a lot of attention, but we're going to focus mostly on the game at hand, the game itself, and uh, some issues that Arizona State had on Saturday night against Washington State. Really, the first place we need to start is with the Sun Devils' injuries. You look at quarterback Manny Wilkins, he was only able to play for the first quarter parts of it and ended up leaving the game with a different injury. It wasn't a foot, it wasn't an ankle injury that had been previously reported upon. It was an upper body injury. And Dylan Sterling Cole pressed into action because Brady White and Bryce Perkins are down, so the Sun Devils have to use a true freshman quarterback. And on the offensive side of the ball, they were down left guard Sam Jones and center A.J. McCollum. So they ended up having a lot of key players who were limited, and not, not even to mention Tim White, who needed to go to the locker room at one point point to get checked on as well i was struck by the visual of seeing manny wilkins sitting on a trainer's table alongside brady white next to him and then at the next trainer's table and there's only two on the sidelines at the next trainer's table you had bryce perkins who was still wearing his neck brace um never in my time around the asu program which is more than 20 years now um Going on 25, have I seen anything like this happen? Uh, we, we looked to see when ASU even had to go to a third-string quarterback due to injuries to two players. Um, the last time that happened was 2000 under Bruce Snyder, which probably not coincidentally happened to be his last year before he got fired. They had uh, a quarterback with uh, two concussions and mononucleosis in uh, Jeff Cron, uh, and uh, they had to go to a, a third starter uh, after uh, Ryan Kelly also had a, an ACL tear who was a four-year starter by that point in the process. And the result was a six-win season. And that's kind of what we might be looking at here for ASU. And this is really o- is just uh, only one aspect of how significant their injury woes really are at, at, at this stage of the season. And it, it's Certainly unprecedented in, in my years covering the program. And you look at, that's just the offensive side of the ball. ASU on defense has a number of important injuries. Armand Perry was not suited up Saturday night. ASU's starting field safety. Christian Sam has been out since the first week of the season uh, with that ankle injury, suffered against Northern Arizona. Salamo Fiso goes down in the fourth quarter against Washington State. And the Sun Devils just have no linebacker depth right now because Sam's been out, because they haven't recruited as many players at the position. Remember, Kareem Orr was playing at 60% against Colorado. He certainly wasn't 100% against Washington State on Saturday. Mo Chandler has been banged up as well. And then James Johnson unable to play. He was not suited up. So the secondary and the linebacker level, secondary and the linebacker level, also completely decimated by injuries at this point. Yeah, they're going to need a triage facility or they're going to have a blood drive going soon. Something at ASU. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild what's happening. Um, and that, that doesn't even talk about Sam Jones missing the game, the starting left guard with uh, an ankle injury, his foot in a boot. A.J. McCollum, ASU starting center, didn't play due to what was disclosed as personal reasons. Um, and then Cam Smith, ASU's um, t- 
top returning receiver from 2014 who missed last season with a knee injury also didn't play in this game. Not sure if that's due to the, the, the knee or some other reason, but when you look across the roster, we're talking about seven or eight starters that either didn't play or were pretty compromised due to injury. That's a very difficult thing to overcome, and especially when you have three injured quarterbacks and your secondary is light on scholarship bodies to begin with. Same thing with your inside linebacker position. Christian Sam and Salam Ofizo, that in and of itself is is, uh, nearly catastrophic sort of a situation for the ASU defense. And so in light of all of that, and that ASU was trailing by 16 points, uh, and after leading 14 to three, and then seeing Washington State go on a 28 nothing run, it was pretty remarkable to see the way that the team recovered from that and uh, gave itself a chance to win in the fourth quarter. Hard for ASU fans to swallow at a certain point because they look at Washington State and they see a loss to an FCS program, they see a loss to Boise State, but this is a Washington State team that is yet to lose in conference play in the Pac-12, shaping up to be one of the top teams in the North, still tied with Washington up there, should be a great Apple Cup this year, and ASU kept it close, it was within five points, and if Tayshawn Smallwood, which we'll talk about later, scoops Scoop and scores, or just even falls on a fumble, it could be a completely different game in the fourth quarter. But let's get into how ASU adjusted as a result of these injuries. When Manny Wilkins was on the field, we'll start at the quarterback position. ASU was able to run more of its offense. Wilkins didn't have the same mobility that he had earlier in the season, but to a certain level that was expected. He played against Colorado with a high ankle sprain, had a toe and an ankle injury uh, here against Washington State. And ASU loses Manny Wilkins in the first quarter. He gets hit, goes out, can't come back in, spends most of the night on the trainer's table. So Dylan Sterling Cole, a true freshman, has to play. And offensive coordinator Chip Lindsey had to make significant adjustments to the play calls to enable Sterling Cole to have more success. Well, I thought Wilkins had better mobility in this game uh, at the outset. Uh, He had that one scramble up the middle where he looked uh, a lot more spry than he did against Colorado. And, um, And then... Uh, Towards the end of that drive, uh, he left the field and he had kind of a limp and they brought in the Sparky formation uh, for a play or two. And and then he goes back onto the field after that was unsuccessful. And that's when he had the hurdle for the touchdown scamper. And I was um, really struck by just how athletic he looked on that play. He could have never done that uh, a week earlier against Colorado, in my opinion, anyways. Um, But then he ends up suffering what appeared to be a throwing arm uh, issue uh, on a hit that he took, his third injury that he's now dealing with, and um, they took his helmet away from him on the sidelines. Dylan Sterling Cole goes into the game. They had a better game plan, I think, for Sterling Cole this week than they had against Colorado. Uh, we saw a lot of these design rollouts where they were getting uh, multiple receivers in his field of vision and an opportunity for him to sort of read the play for a longer period of time and and find an open receiver or scramble out of bounds, throw the football away. Uh, There were some plays in which he executed that reasonably well and others where he definitely didn't. And he's still uh, a a very early uh, developing quarterback. Uh, He had made some, some pretty darn good throws in the pocket though. He had a at least two to Nikhil Harry that really stood out to me. Uh, we know he has a big arm. We know he looks physically the part. Um, there's a lot of tools, and um, yet 
it's still going to be a very steep learning curve for Sterling Cole. I think he was 7 of 16 in the game overall. ASU didn't throw for that many yards. I still think there probably could have been more opportunities for the run replacements and bubble screens and, and things that got the ball to Tim White or maybe Demario Richard uh, in, in other ways. But they really did uh, expand on what they were trying to do to ha- find something that was going to work in this game. ASU ends up running the Sparky package 21 times out of 59 plays on Saturday night against Washington State. And I think that's another factor into how they adjusted the game plan with Dylan Sterling Cole in the game. You don't want to have a freshman quarterback who's going to put the ball in jeopardy in a game that was so winnable for ASU throughout the contest. And the Sun Devils had slight success with the Sparky package at times. They had that big Kalen Balazs 52-yard run on the counter action in the first half that gave him a 14-3 lead, really big play in the game. But ultimately, Washington State was able to make some adjustments down the stretch to that, and ASU ended up having to go with Sterling Cole, uh, throwing the ball a bit more in the fourth quarter. And the, the game plan really was to try and wear Washington State down with that Sparky package and to only have 59 plays is kind of emblematic of ASU slowing the tempo down on purpose and shrinking the game as opposed to the normal Chip Lindsey Todd Graham strategy of playing more plays up tempo uh, high octane football as they would say to give your yourself more chances in the game they ran about a half dozen or so fewer offensive plays in this game than they did against Colorado um they had 21 sparky formation plays that we charted out of a total of 59 or 60 plays, 60 if you include a penalty that they took, uh, procedural. And my analogy is this is kind of like expecting your car fuel efficiency to work normally when you're going down the highway on a bunch of flat tires and your carburetor not not working. Uh, it's just not going to happen, right? Uh there's no way that you go to a four-string quarterback who's a freshman. You have two starters out on your offensive line. You have one of your top four receivers out, and you're just going to continue uh, without being affected at all by that on the offensive side of the football, and especially when you're playing against good football teams. Colorado is a very good football team. Um, they've won now uh, 11 of their last 14 Pac-12 games, I believe. You look at Washington State. Last year was their best season that they've had in um, maybe 25 years uh, on the Palouse. This year they're on pace to be in that same realm. Um, Mike Leach has definitely done a good job of, of turning things around and getting it going for them. And so ASU was was trying to overcome these enormous challenges and frankly pulled a lot of stuff out of its hat in order to try to be able to make that happen and still felt short, but that's a pretty valiant effort, all things considered. And ASU, another thing that the Sun Devils did on Saturday on offense was try to incorporate trick plays into the offense, which is something that we felt they could have done against Colorado to try and give them a better opportunity. Against Washington State, they did that, and they did it out of the Sparky formation. You had Jack Smith throwing a pass that was successful, and then later on in the game, the Sun Devils tried to set up another Jack Smith pass, and it failed because Demario Richard bobbled the snap. Tim White was coming across the formation in motion. He was going to be the one who pitched it back to Smith for a big play, but ASU doesn't get that. Nevertheless, the effort was there to try and get 
more creative. We thought this might be a game where ASU could go with an onside kick, a fake on special teams, because they have such dominant special teams units at times, and the Sun Devils instead use their opportunities on the offensive side of the ball for those. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they hadn't passed the ball out of the Sparky formation all season to that point. I, I don't nope. believe that they had. And and, and we were kind of uh, openly asking when they were going to do that. I thought that they would probably do it close to the line of scrimmage. Um, the uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the two-point conversion, they actually had Sterling Cole out there, but he went down the line of scrimmage and they, and they snapped it directly to uh, Jack Smith. I, I thought it was a play, something like that. It, it wasn't like the traditional Sparky no, situation. No, no, it was not. It was not traditional Sparky. It was Fred Gamage who ended up throwing that ball. Okay, yeah, Fred Gamage, yeah. right? So, uh, so there was that trick play, which is something that we hadn't seen before all season. Uh, there was, as you mentioned, the Jack Smith uh, completion that uh, helped them on a scoring drive uh, earlier on, and they did. I mean, they, you had the long. Kalen Balaj touchdown run on the direct snap, which happened not long after Manny Wilkins left left the mm-hmm. game. So they they really did do some things creatively. They tried to get that one more that ended up going for a loss. Um, you can't really find too much fault in the uh, the the process that they approached this game with and some of the things that they had uh, in their arsenal that they brought out. We knew ASU would be significantly limited on offense, even if Manny Wilkins wasn't able to go, uh, or was able to go, I should say, uh, because Sam Jones was going to be out, because you've had a number number of other guys banged up. We knew before the game that A.J. McCollum was out, so Tyler McClure, a walk-on center, is getting his first extensive playing time. So the offensive game plan was really tailored about minimizing mistakes, putting your team in the best situations to win, and taking what Washington State could give you on the defensive side of the ball. And now flipping things over to the defensive side for Arizona State and playing without Christian Sam again, playing without Armand Perry for the first time in a while. He did miss the second half against Colorado. Uh, The Sun Devils loaded up the box against Washington State, which is an interesting strategy, and they end up taking over the number one rushing defense ranking in the Pac-12. But, Chris, does that matter right now? No. Uh, And that's always been kind of this uh, barometer that Todd Graham has put forth as being an important uh, determinant in defensive football success. But ASU's first in the league, the only team that's giving up fewer than 100 yards rushing on average. And yet ASU's uh, passing defense remains last in the country, 128, obviously last in the Pac-12, nearly 100 yards worse, as a matter of fact, than the next closest uh, opponent or team in the the Pac-12, I should say. And in this game, Luke Falk, who who, uh, entered... Uh, Saturday with a 71.4 completion percentage, second in the Pac-12, completed nearly 80% of his throws, which is far too high of a percentage to expect your team to be able to be successful at defending that. They don't really need to run the football, and Washington State had been running more this year than in the past, about 35 to 40% of their plays in an average game. Well, this game, they had no success running the football, negative 60 yards rushing, (laughs) which is... um, Unbelievable! That's you know I don't know I didn't look at the statistics, but that's probably one of the worst performances by an ASU opponent ever mm-hmm. running the football, and um, and and even so, Luke Fox said after the game, look, they were giving us a numbers advantage to throw the ball, not run the ball, and so that's what we took. That's the way we're built. We're 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 built to be able to throw the football 60, 70 times if that's what we need to do. And so they they went out and they executed. And when you're able to complete about eighty percent of your throws and have at least some of those be of the explosive variety, which they were able to do. They targeted uh, 
Kareem Moore successfully. They targeted uh, Deshaun Hayes successfully, and they targeted Chad Adams successfully. That's enough to to put themselves in a position to win. It wasn't as catastrophic as some of the games where we've seen from a a uh, breakdown standpoint as ASU has had earlier in the season. But given ASU's ailments on the offensive side of the football, it was more than enough for the Cougars to win the game. Well, one of the bread and butter. Uh, pieces of the air raid offense is when a defense stacks the box it's a pass if the defense gives you a numbers advantage it's a run they come up to the line of scrimmage with multiple plays ready to run and against Arizona State Washington State called for drop back passes on 63 of 70 plays Luke Falk credited with 10 rushes he was sacked on seven of those plays and three of which were scrambles so those were all intentional dropbacks that's 90 percent of Washington State's reps on offense as passing plays and that says not only did ASU put numbers in the box but that Washington State knew the weakness of Arizona State's team is its pass defense Absolutely, and, and ASU did bring a lot of pressure. Uh, as you mentioned, seven sacks in the game. Kron Crump had three by himself. Crump is now first in the Pac-12 with eight sacks. I think he's third nationally in the category. He continues to emerge and become a big playmaker. Of course, there was also uh, DJ Calhoun was in the backfield pretty regularly, and they had several other players who, who were be able to make an impact. They didn't bring as many uh, six-man pressures all out blitzes as, as maybe they have in previous years but still it was there were quite a few as a percentage of their overall defensive snaps um, I think it's important to mix it up I think it's really important against this type of a team to show blitz drop into an eight man uh, try to give yourself an opportunity to get an interception they didn't really uh, accomplish that in this game uh, no interceptions out of 53 passing attempts 70 drop backs as you said uh, they had three pass deflections total in the game that's a that's a sign uh corresponding with the 80% completion rate. Luke Falk is a very accurate passer. This is somebody who has a chance to be a first-round draft pick, potentially, uh, when his college career is over. And ASU, again, limited by its its athleticism on the back end overall, and particularly when Armand Perry's out with with, with a, a turf toe. Kareem Moore is not, a, not nearly 100% with a knee sprain. You have Marcus Ball, who's more of a, a, a uh, in-the-box run defender type of a safety, a stronger safety type. And then you have Deshavon Hayes, who really is a convert to this position. It it If you have... A great secondary. Maybe you can get away with doing this, but ASU is far from having a great secondary. Now, all of that being said, ASU kept it close. It was 37-32. Yes. All the Sun Devils injuries, all of Washington State's success for the air. This was a very winnable game at the end for ASU when at many points in the game, it, it really didn't look like it was going to be. And we're going to talk a lot about the key plays that led to the overall outcome in the next few minutes. But before we do so, uh, here on the Sun Devil Source Report podcast, we often tease our premium report podcast, which we have released on Monday sporadically throughout the year when we felt it's necessary. But every Thursday, we do a premium report podcast, Chris, where we preview ASU's upcoming opponent, ASU's upcoming matchup, the schemes of their opponent, the key personnel, what ASU can do to have success. Something we said in last week's podcast, Nikhil Harry could have success against Washington State. It was time for him to get back in the game. We said that Washington State is going to take what what ASU gives it defensively. And throughout the course of the season, we've had a lot of interesting podcast discussions with publishers around the Pac-12 on the Scout Network. We've uh, done Q and A's with uh, with sanctuary members that are uh, 
just really exciting. We get into a lot of different topics, including uh, our favorite restaurants in the Phoenix area. Uh, we have a good time with it. Yeah. You know, so we, we, we it's 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 uh, there's a lot different elements to our premium podcast than there are to our, our free podcast. So um, and it also is. Uh, more of a window into the premium content that we do for the site because uh, keep in mind just our podcast is just a tiny fraction of the overall uh, content that we provide on sunlevelsource.com right so let people know how they can uh, access all of our site information um, because I think that's kind of what we want to be able to do is transition people who are only aware of us through our free podcast into being able to read a lot of our free content, which makes up about half of our overall content, and then be able to uh, get, an, get a, a look at some of our premium content, which in, includes um, much more intricate breakdowns of ASU football. So to become a member of Sun Devil Source, you need to sign up. You can go to www.sundevilsource.com. Chris, there's the sign-up button in the upper right-hand corner of the screen, and then explain the process from there. Yeah, it's really straightforward. It, it's um, um, maybe two pages. You decide if you want to be a monthly member or an annual member, uh, $9.95 for a month subscription uh it's 99.95 for an annual subscription that's works out to about eight dollars or so uh on a monthly basis uh you get access to the largest and most active asu premium message board community uh just on a on a game day in and of itself we probably end up with a thousand posts or more of fellow asu fans there there, there's several thousand that participate uh in the community uh, you get to interact with us on a daily basis. Ask us whatever questions you have uh, that maybe come from this podcast or th- some of our other work. Uh, we're very uh, active and engaged uh, with the community in that in that regard, uh, and we provide uh, a much greater wealth of information there than we ever possibly could just talking to you on an hour or so podcast. And each week, every Thursday night, we publish a content piece with links to how to download our premium podcast, how to listen to it. It's a video on the site as well. Really exciting stuff coming forward uh, for that podcast this week and And in the coming weeks. And a lot of recruiting stuff, especially now that we're getting into um, the last three months of the cycle. We actually just put up a post um, this week about 100 days out from National Signing Day, which is February 1st, 2017. ASU has eight commitments. How does that stack up to the recent years in the Telegram era? What things are we looking for? Why has there been a drought of about uh, 85, 90 days since they've had a commitment? Uh, how have staff ch- changes at ASU this year, transitioning from Mike Norvell, Chip Long, Patrick Suttis, Chris Ball, and others impacted recruiting? It's very very detailed and we want love if you would uh, join us uh, in the sanctuary community on sunlevelsource.com all right so let's get back to the podcast talking about uh, ASU's 3732 loss to Washington State and let's trace where ASU f- fell apart uh, the Sun Devils took a 14 to 3 lead uh, midway through the first half, Kalen Balaj has a 52-yard touchdown run, and things are looking good for ASU. Kickoff unit comes out. Zane Gonzalez, one of the best touchback kickers in the country, and all he does is kick the ball a little bit shorter this time, and Robert Taylor takes it 100 yards to the house for a Washington State kickoff return for a touchdown. The Cougars, notoriously bad on special teams, haven't had a kickoff return for a touchdown since 2003, and Taylor does it against a typically outstanding ASU kickoff unit. Absolutely, and that uh, definitely was the start 
that, that gave Washington State a spark. Of course, we talked about the 28 nothing run. That was the first um, points of that run. And um, just ASU's been really good on special teams this year. It's, it's probably given ASU a win or two already out of its five wins as a result of the disparity between the Sun Devils and their opponents in this regard. And that couldn't be said in this game. And it wasn't that ASU had uh, a breakdown with its punt game with Matt Hawk. It wasn't that Zane Gonzalez really did anything wrong. He had one field goal attempt. He converted it. His kickoffs all went into the end zone. But maybe he took a little bit something off of it. Maybe they were trying to pin Washington State deep. You can't know for sure. They haven't talked about that, about that um, following the game. But uh, given uh, ASU's uh, offensive challenges, it's, it's, it's a possibility that they were trying to pin the Cougars deep there uh, instead of giving the ball at the 25-yard line, which is pretty much standard operating procedure when you have Zane Gonzalez, who's among the, the national leaders in touchback percentage. And either way, it didn't work out. They, the Cougars fielded the ball about the two-yard line. They were able to get around the edge. You had uh, Zane Gonzalez just miss pushing uh, the return man out of bounds along the boundary. And then after that, you had Malik Luol, who came in and, and took a diving, kind of flailing attempt to do so as well. Didn't work. They replayed the uh, uh, they replayed it to make sure that he was in bounds. He was, and that kind of was the the impetus for the Washington State uh, comeback. You mentioned the 28 straight points for Washington State. That run continued in the second half. We'll pick things up in the third quarter. Washington State facing a key fourth and two on its own side of the field. And Mike Leach, the Pirate, uh, g- decides to go for it. And for one of the rare occasions during the game, he calls a run play. He knew he had it up the middle. They gained nine yards, end up scoring on that drive, and that was a big turning point in the game because ASU thought it had a stop on its own side of the field. Yeah, I thought that definitely was like probably the key of the the third quarter. Um, you had uh, ASU was down uh, by just three points at that stage of the game, 17-14. If they get a stop on that fourth down play, they force a punt, uh, they have an opportunity to tie or, or maybe even take a lead. Instead, it becomes a two-score game uh, after they convert the fourth and two on the run play. It was their most successful run play of the night, I'm sure, nine yards. I mean, they, they didn't have any Amazing. other successful run play whatsoever to speak of, which is uh, saying a lot. And, um, you know, from there, they were able to just kind of march it in. Uh, they had a 29-yard a, uh, pass to uh, to Martin that was uh, one of those uh, 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 big plays that Washington State had uh, in the second half in particular. And uh, ASU just gave up just a few too many explosive plays uh, with its secondary. Next big play we have to talk about is probably one that will be ingrained in the minds of Sun Devil fans for a long time uh, when they think about this game. It was almost the defining play of the game. Score is 37 to 29 after ASU scores and gets a two-point conversion. They were down 16 points. They pull it to within one possession after Fred Gamage tosses the two-point conversion. And Karan Crump comes up with his second sack of the game, comes off the, the right edge for ASU, left edge for Washington State. <clears throat> Sacks Luke Falk, strip sack, and Tayshawn Smallwood, instead of falling on the football, tried to do a scoop and score. He had the open field in front of him just about 10, 15 yards until the end zone, and he couldn't come up with the ball. Washington State recovers, and a huge missed opportunity for ASU. And Tagram even said in his Monday press conference, we'd like to scoop and score there. Uh, he said that exact those exact words. That's what they teach in a practice setting. He also said, of course, we, you'd like to get possession of the football. Number one thing is possession. Right, but 
the way they teach it is scoop and score. So that's um, it's a very instinctual thing that kicks in when you're on the field. You see the ball on the ground. You see that there's open field ahead of you. You're a defensive lineman. You try to go down, grab the ball, pick it up, run into the end zone. Uh, Tayshawn Smallwood had that opportunity. He gets two hands on the football, uh, and it just slips through his grasp. I think he didn't bend uh, over at, at, in his legs as much as he needed to in order to be able to secure that ball successfully. Um, and then Washington State recovers. Uh, Karan Crump gets his third sack on the very next play he had back-to-back sacks uh, but Washington State was able to punt from its own end zone and ASU only managed a field goal on it uh, on the ensuing uh, possession um, which uh, came with about four and a half minutes left in the game uh, they were facing a fourth and 12 or 13 at that situation uh, I asked Todd Graham if they even thought about trying to go for it there, he said no, primarily because it was a long goal to gain. And then also they needed a two-point conversion attempt, and that would have been just a tie with four and a half minutes left. You have to be able to expect your defense to get a stop. They didn't. Washington State got three first-down conversions and bled the clock out. Another reason that Washington State was able to bleed the clock out, Arizona State was forced to use timeouts on offense with an inexperienced quarterback. Correct, two of them. I believe, maybe three. And that that's a big turning point in the game for ASU when you have to kick a field goal because it's 4th and 12, you've lost yards, and you pull it within 37-32. You ask your defense to make a stop against a team like Washington State, which is comfortable putting the ball in the air in these situations, which can oftentimes be advantageous for a team that is trying to get one more possession. Who knows, you get a deflection, you get a bat down at the line of scrimmage, all of a sudden the clock is stopped and you don't have to burn a timeout. The Sun Devils were not able to get those key stops, and because they had to use two timeouts on offense with Dylan Sterling Cole, a freshman quarterback, they end up losing the game 37-32. Time ran out on ASU. It's not like you can really blame Smallwood in light of everything else that happened in this game, obviously, but that is your uh, junior defensive uh, experience leader. He's a guy that is that represented ASU at Pac-12 Media Days. Um, just got to make that play, really, uh, in, in that situation. I think he knew it. He stayed down on the field a little extra couple seconds uh, after seeing that Washington State recovered. It was uh, really a gift that was that was put out there, uh, enabled by the pass rush of Karan Crump. But uh, then again, ASU still had a chance. I don't have any find any fault with Todd Graham's decision to try to kick a field goal there situationally. I think that's probably what you have to do. And I didn't even think that ASU was going to get as close as it did uh, after trailing by 16 and the way that the momentum shift was going in that game. I, I wanted to go through those big plays sequentially, but there are two others that I wanted to talk about from the game. And They've kind of become the theme for ASU over the past two years. It's the coverage bus. There was the 52-yard touchdown pass over the head of Kareem Moore that Gabe Marks caught, and then the other long pass that Luke Falk threw that went over the head of Gump Hayes at cornerback. And Todd Graham said the Sun Devils have played well in coverage at certain times. He, he said as many as nine reps out of ten, it's probably not that high, but they are still giving up these coverage busts. And against a team like Washington State, you know that they're going deep. It's just inevitable. Let's let's assume that Graham's correct, and, and it is 9 out of 10, right? Well, if a team is throwing the ball 53 times, that means what? That five of those 50-some-odd times are going to be coverage busts? That's all it takes to lose a game. You have five coverage busts on 53 passing attempts. Guys get behind you. Um, let's say the average 
yardage of those types of plays is 30 or 40 yards, right? Well, that's 200 yards on five plays, you know, maybe 150 yards on five plays. Well, that that's enough to lose, and especially when you're you're as challenged as they were on the offensive side of the football. Let's also keep in mind the way the ASU uh, plays is an aggressive approach. So they had seven sacks in this game. They had a bunch more quarterback pressures. They're bringing a lot of five and six man blitzes. Well, when you're doing that, you're not dropping seven and eight defensive players, almost never dropping eight defensive players. When you don't drop eight, that means you don't have, uh, you're not playing two man. Two man really is a term for two safeties with man uh, around the rest of the field. Uh, those safeties have the ability to close down to the sideline on uh, vertical uh, type of throws that Washington State prefers, which is a lot of these fades and other uh, types of throws like you know posts uh, or cor- post corners or corners to the boundary. Uh, and, and when you look at the, the completed passes against ASU, uh, both of the, the the two long ones against the cornerbacks were on the numbers and outside, and then you had the one that was c- completed where uh, Chad Adams had a man. Uh, assignment that he was responsible for and he wasn't able to get to the ball that was also outside of the hash mark and so if you're if you're disguising your coverages more because um, the air raid type of scheme and especially when you have an advanced quarterback like Luke Falk he's making these very quick uh, pre and post snap uh, analysis of what the defense is in and where I need to be able to where I'm going to be able to get a a one-on-one matchup targeted right Uh, if you show something you drop to something else you get into some eight-man opportunities that's where you have the ability to get over and get a safety in position to help uh, make a play there was almost no situations other than when two ASU defensive players collided into each other preventing an interception other than that there were almost no passes defended or interception opportunities in this game and and that's uh, as much as anything in my opinion uh, cost ASU an opportunity to win there were no turnovers in this game no interceptions there was the football fell on the ground a couple times uh, there was a Dylan Sterling Cole fumble that ASU recovered correct and then there was the uh, the strip sack by by Karan Crump the opponents weren't able to take advantage of it and then we haven't even talked about this but then you have the Tim White punt return uh, touchdown which was sort of the equalizer to the Washington State kickoff touchdown if you want to look at it that way in a lot of ways this game was kind of even um, but it was just a few plays here and there, and as much as anything, the, some of the coverage busts that we saw from ASU that we didn't see from the Cougars. So ASU falls to 5-3, and three, second straight loss, but the larger ramifications of this loss are significant. The Sun Devils play three of their final four regular season games on the road, including a game at Washington, the class of the Pac-12 right now, a rivalry game at Arizona. And you talk about this weekend, Oregon, and then the other game on the schedule, their lone home game, comes against a Utah team that is ranked as high as any team in the Pac-12 South right now and tied for first place. So the Sun Devils are in a really interesting position where they could be underdogs in every game the rest of the way. They're already seven-point dogs this weekend against the Ducks. Yeah, so they lost their second game in a row. That's their seventh loss, I believe, in the Todd Graham era at home. Uh, they've tended to rebound very nicely after losses with home wins. They weren't able to get that done. They're um, basically an infirmary unit. Uh, 
with their football team going into this week's game against Oregon. They, you would have loved to have been able to have your bye week probably one week earlier, two weeks earlier, would have given you an opportunity to heal up. Instead, they're not going to get that until after Oregon. They're a seven-and-a-half-point underdog to what, in my opinion, is the actual worst defense in the Pac-12. Even Certainly, in my mind, I see it as being worse than ASU when you factor in the talent on hand. Uh, and ASU... It sounds kind of crazy after a 4-0 start, but there is no guarantee of ASU reaching bowl eligibility this season with four wins left, uh, four games left, I should say. They're going to be an underdog to Oregon. You have Utah as a ranked opponent that ASU will likely be an underdog to at home uh, on on its uh, senior day. And then you have uh, a, a almost certain uh, unwinnable game when you go to Washington because Washington just has it rolling unlike anything we've seen in the last few years in the Pac-12 at this stage of the process. And then if, let's just hypothetically say that ASU loses as an underdog in these three games, well, then you go into Arizona, which is a bad football team, but you've lost five games in a row and, you, and maybe you still have some of these injury problems that are that are plaguing you. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not going to be easy. I, I do think ASU probably wins one more game at least. But not a sure thing in any stretch of the imagination. Schedule is setting up to make things a little more difficult than we probably anticipated for ASU, but the injuries are a result of that. A healthy Manny Wilkins completely changes things for ASU's offense. If you get Salam Fiso back in time, uh, it's looking probably pretty unlikely that he'd play against Oregon the, with the way he walked off the field on Saturday. But you never know. Sam Jones, you can get him back into the lineup. And all of a sudden, you have some of your key players getting healthy at the right time. But it's still going to be, be very challenging to get to that six-win mark. Yeah, I may have said earlier um, that that it was uh, in 2000 that it was Dennis Erickson who got fired. Obviously, that was not correct if I did say that. No, no, no. You, you said, I said Snyder. I, I said, okay, right. So you had so you had that happen, and then ASU also was decimated by injuries uh, in the final year of Dennis Erickson. Um, 2011. Right. You had Omar Bolden and Brandon McGee, two key starters that went down defensively. They had injuries at other positions. So so what, what you had is two of, two of ASU's least memorable seasons this century have come when they had these significant types of injuries. And so now we're seeing this happen again uh, in, in 2016. And this was a team that already wasn't forecast by us or others to be uh, especially promising, you know, transitioning to a new quarterback for our new offensive line and all the things that we've kind of talked about, the secondary issues. Um, so if they are able to win another couple games, be bowl eligible, get the bowl practices, return to health uh, for the spring, I, I do think that all of this is going to kind of serve them well as they transition to 2017. It's just that um, in, in a shorter uh, perspective, it's hard to see it as anything other than kind of a, a disappointing, frustrating season for ASU fans. So let's look around the Pac-12 right now and see where things are at. In the north, you've got Washington still on ASU schedule, 4-0 in conference, 7-0 overall, ranked fourth in the country. They're tied with Washington State now, which is 4-0 in conference, 5-2 overall because, of course, they have to lose to an FCS school every year. And I think it was on this podcast that we said that uh, Washington State would get right back in the hunt. Uh, you were very <laughs> vociferous about that, I must say. I mean, last year they lose to their first two games, I believe, last year they mm -hmm. lost um, – including an FCS opponent 
uh, and then they came storming back, or maybe they won like a close game in their second game. I don't know. I have the two seasons kind of mixed up in my head, but one year they lost their first two. The other year they played Rutgers, I believe, and they won by like four points. Yep, that was last year. Last year, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, but but both years they just kept improving and getting better as the season kind of went into the middle, uh, and they're doing it again this year. They've won four straight in the Pac-12, 4-0 start. When's the last time that happened? I don't even know. make it five because Oregon State's next. Right, and they have a great <laughs> schedule. because, And then they play Arizona, I believe, yep. after that. So so they have a really favorable schedule. And like you said, Carrie, that Apple Cup could be the most fascinating matchup between uh, – and, and not only fascinating, but have national implications. Yeah. Because if Washington's able to get through that game uh, – they're going to be a big favorite over whoever comes out of the South, and they have a really great chance to, to make it to the college football playoff. But Mike Leach could absolutely ruin everything for the Pac-12 conference if Washington State stays undefeated and then beats Washington in the Apple Cup. He already ruins everything. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. But, but the one thing I do want to say about Mike Leach— Yes. Um, you know, we're, we, we're not big on the getting into the clickbait stuff and all that or whatever, but the non-sequitur— uh, that that he kept delivering as I'm not going to answer that because I don't want to get fined in his post game press conference to like four or five different questions about ASU. I thought that was so childish, and um, you know maybe Todd Graham should have stayed above the fray and not necessarily uh, called the, the uh, you know told Leach that his comments were chicken bleep uh, after the game. Uh, but I, I can't really find too much fault in him. But just what what a childish uh, baby that Mike Leach is. Uh, just like a petulant kid, I just—it's uh, very distasteful type of a type type of. Uh, uh, it's you know these these coaches. It's it's really their uh, responsibility to be a good image and a good role model and help develop and mentor kids. That's 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 the number one responsibility, right? Is to teach kids things about life that they're going to be able to then transition beyond college. And when that's your behavior, when those are the type of antics that you do, it's really pretty much embarrassing. And I, I really, I think that anybody who uh, isn't looking at this through a biased lens is going to see it that way. I completely agree. Cal next in the PAC 12 North act coming off a victory over Oregon, which is now four and Impact 12 conference or Owen oh, four Impact 12 yeah, conference yeah. play. Uh, that was a 52 49 final in overtime in Berkeley. Heck of a finish on Friday night there. Um, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I, if, if you watched that, I mean, what I did, was going on with Oregon's defense? I, I did watch it, and all I could say is. I I actually went to our message board and posted that it was the worst. It's the worst looking defense structurally that I've seen in in many years. They have more breakdowns, uh, like assignment errors, as a percentage of their overall defensive snaps than I can ever remember. And I'm not saying they're as talented as they've always been when when Oregon's been really successful. um, You know, like in the last 10, 15 years or so, but. This was like a calamitous type of a performance. Uh, they had linebackers that had no idea who they should be covering. Uh, they had um, safeties who were like 20, 30 yards out of position on things that are very like obvious key read assignments. And then they had some plays where it was like they didn't, I didn't even know, I'm not sure if they had guys assigned to the receivers. Uh, <laughs> 
and and I think the the thing that you could take away from this is Brady Hoke, the first year defensive coordinator, uh, who replaced Don Pelham, who got reassigned on the staff at Oregon. Uh, he had never. Uh, been a defensive coordinator coming up uh, before he became a, a head coach at, at San Diego State in Michigan. Um, and so I think giving him that sort of a job and assignment and responsibility in light of that fact, uh, it, now, it now in retrospect looks like a really catastrophic mistake that could even potentially cost their coaching staff their, their jobs. And we've talked in the past, how do you have to re- go to a freshman quarterback at Oregon you have a Heisman Trophy winner, Marcus Mariota, and the success that they've had at that position group and with their style of offense. There's just so many things that point to a failing of leadership uh, with the Ducks. And even that all being the case, ASU's a seven and a half point underdog going up to Eugene this week against an 0-4 team that is just uh, an abomination. But I do like Oregon's freshman quarterback. I think he's going to be a good player as time un- uh, unfolds. We saw what Oregon was able to do in a triple overtime game at ASU uh, where that was a 100-plus point. Uh, yep, 61-57 I think was the final, some, something like some, that. Some abomination of football. <laughs> and... and, and um, it may take a lot of points from ASU against this bad Oregon defense for the Sun Devils to win. And that's something that we're going to get into uh, very extensively in our subsequent premium podcast this week. Utah 52, UCLA 45. Uh, UCLA with, in my opinion, one of the worst game plans you could possibly have. Uh, down to their backup quarterback, and they threw the ball 70 times with Mike Foffel. They scored 45 points pretty remarkably against Utah. And who picked the Utes to be 7-1 and one at this point? I don't know. That game was so flummoxing to me. I... I like UCLA was, in my I kind of disagree with you, uh, because well, okay, I, I know where you're going with this, and and you're right to a certain extent. I'll, I'll give you this. Their personnel was <laughs> was other than Josh Rosen. Yes, their personnel wasn't really all that suited to a pro style offense. Well, they tried this pro style offense. They tried to go with their all these jumbo packages and heavy tight ends and all this stuff, but yet they haven't been recruiting for that in recent years. And it's such a stark contrast to the way that they have been playing offensively. And so they couldn't have been expected to just go out there with their personnel and do well in that regard. Uh, Mike Foffel was um, really uh, bad against ASU. Uh, now, he looked pretty decent, actually, uh, in this game against a Utah defense that, let's face it, has been very stingy yeah. uh, this season. The thing that really shocked me, though, about this game, Kerry, is... Utah has had a good defense and and just gave up how many points? 45. 45 points. And UCLA's had a really good defense and gave up 50. 52. 52, 52 points. And 300 yards rushing to Joe Williams. So that, there's just no way in my mind that a very average or below average Utah offense that had struggled to put points on the board this season could have done that to UCLA unless UCLA kind of gave up. Yeah. I just don't think it's even possible because UCLA's defense prior to this had been good. This really this really smacks of having a disconnection on your team 
coaches trying to figure out something that's going to work on offense. You have all these struggles. They have these aspirations of winning the Pac-12 South. That's kind of slipping away from them. Um, you know, going into this game, they were one and three in the league. They, and to me, it just looked like a team that said, "Eh, you know, screw it," and we're. We're not going to really play as hard as we have on the defensive side of the football. And really, that's embarrassing. And uh, it falls upon the coaching staff. Just like the Oregon situation falls on the coaching staff, this, too, is a really embarrassing situation that falls on the coaching staff. And, yeah, okay, you don't have Josh Rosen, but your defense, no way you should no way you should give up 52 points to Utah. I'm going on some long rants today on some of these <laughs> Pac-12 things. I know that. Well, UCLA... Good luck. You're at Colorado next. Colorado coming off a 10-5 victory over Stanford that really should have been more. Colorado could not get anything done on special teams in the kicking game. Missed three chip shot field goals, but dominated Stanford at the point of attack. Yes, Colorado dominated Stanford at the point of attack. And the Cardinal made Philip Lindsay look like a world beater again. 10-5. I thought it was like the AL Championship Series or something <laughs> like that, right? Um, they, they took the safety on purpose. I know you like that, oh, Kerry. genius coaching decision. Well coaching. Um, Stanford's offense is just, I mean... I, I think that I saw a stat today. Oregon is 126th in scoring defense, and Stanford is 126th in scoring offense in the Pac-12. The, the, the one point that I really want to make here is... Christian McCaffrey, and you could say, okay, yeah, he's played injured this year in part because of his offense not being very good. But look at the difference between Christian McCaffrey when he has a great offensive line like last year. He finished second in the Heisman voting. And then this year, he's basically not even in any national conversation for anything, right? Well, they replaced three of their starters, I think, on the offensive line. They're not nearly as good. They don't have the same kind of a, a balance with their passing attack. People are keying on McCaffrey. Folks, there's a lot of running backs that can be very successful around the country. You could probably have 20, 30 running backs do everything that Christian McCaffrey did last year at Stanford if he had that offense in that year. And when I listen to analysts talk about running backs and how those that's the difference and all these things... I think about what Philip Lindsay did to ASU at Colorado, okay? Nobody is going to put Philip Lindsay on their top 50 running backs nationally. If you went through and graded out all those guys on NFL prospects, he wouldn't be in the top 50, in my opinion. But yet, he's been one of the best backs the last several weeks in the Pac-12, this whole season, really, in the Pac-12. And the reason is because of everything around him. There's a lot of guys who are 5'8 to six foot two and they have the speed and athleticism and the ability to make people miss it's all about whether they get the opportunity to make the plays or not the same can be said for demario richard or kalen balage look at those guys when the holes are there versus not there look at their yards per carry when things have been functioning at a high level for asu versus this season when those guys are more like in the four yard per carry range the difference really is about all of the pieces around them and not the backs themselves so that will bring an end to our Pac-12 discussion. A number of teams on buys this week, and that brings an end to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. ASU 5-3, and 2-3 and three in Pac-12 conference play after falling at home to Washington State 37-32. The Sun Devils on the road this week. Maybe their best opportunity to score a victory the remainder of the season against an Oregon squad that, as Chris just said, structurally 
Doesn't look very good on defense. And Todd Graham even said it today. He complimented their offense, said their backs and wide receivers are challenging. Special teams, Nelson's a great returner. And defensively, they have struggled. So a big opportunity for ASU. And uh, we'll see if the Sun Devils can heal up in time. It should be interesting. I got a little fired up there in the Pac-12 segment. (laughs) Excuse me for that. But thanks for listening. And hopefully you'll check out our premium podcast later in the week.